Will you turn please to Colossians chapter 1? And maybe somebody could read verses 15 to 29 for us, please. Colossians 1, 15 to 29. Any volunteers? I, think, I thought it was funny this morning when John said to the Bible and people got out their telephones and uh, with the Bible on their phone. <laughs> I didn't know there's so many text messages. Yeah, they were actually. I read, I read one or two of them. But, uh, um, <laughs> no. Anybody like to read the passage? Yes, go. Uh, Colossians 1 15 to 29. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Carry on. Yeah, if you go to the end of the chapter, please. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Great, and I enjoyed the reading of that. And I, I was once um, taking a service in Batley in, in West Yorkshire, and uh, a godly old minister came up and rebuked me nicely afterwards. And um, um, I, I try to have a rule, and that is if, um, uh, if I'm rebuked not to answer, not to give a defence for at least 24 hours, the natural reaction to a rebuke is that you defend yourself immediately or 
you you go on the attack and um, you know somebody says something to you and you say well you did this which is awful but it's uh, but that's a natural thing but he rebuked me he said you didn't read the Bible well and he said um, you need to that is the word of God somebody said hey Rod you read the Bible well it's the only bit of one of your services that we can guarantee is inspired and, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but we need to read it well I hope you read it well very well sorry thank you um, I love biography. Um, uh, Maybe if I had a better trained mind, I would have enjoyed academic books more than I do. I read academic books, I read commentaries and things, but, uh, but I enjoy biography. Secular biography, Christian biography, I, th- I think they're wonderful. But I am aware that one of the problems of biography, and especially autobiography, um, is the danger of egotism and uh, self-justification and even lies. Um, we put it completely on. The, the person who's having their biography written uh, puts a completely different spin on what he said. <laughs> I shouldn't tell you this. I've never said this publicly before. But uh, somebody once sent me six chapters of a biography they'd written about me. And uh, they'd not asked my permission. And they just said, thought you'd be interested in writing one of you. What do you think? And I, I was absolutely horrified. I really was. And I was so cross with him anyway. He died a death. But um, uh, it, it, it just got bit. He'd heard me several times preaching. He started to put things together. And it's a dreadful thing. I don't. Um, Horatius Bonner left in his will that nobody should ever write his biography. And uh, I. I think that's not a bad idea. And yet I love reading other people's biographies. But um, the Apostle Paul gives us insights time and again into his, his life, doesn't he? He has autobiographical insights. Um, they're little snippets. They're always on the backdrop of doctrine. Uh, but he tells us very, very honestly about himself. He talks about his failures as well as his successes. And he talks about the struggles that he has. Um, that there's certainly no gloss on the biographies of of the Apostle Paul. Now, Colossians, this little book, was written to encourage Christians to remain faithful to the Gospel in the face of false teaching. There were false emphases. There was a false view of Christ. There was a false view of God. And uh, and so you get this wonderful corrective passage in Colossians chapter 1 about the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, throughout the whole little letter, he emphasises the supremacy of Christ. And then he authenticates his authority to write these things by telling of his own suffering. Alright? So here is Paul writing to correct this little church. He's he's actually never visited the church of Colossae. Um, He he worked in Ephesus, as we know. Somebody said for three years. I thought it was for two. But anyway, he worked in Ephesus, say, two or three years. And, And there, a chap from... Colossi, a hundred miles away, called Philemon, had come, heard Paul preaching, been converted, and gone back to Colossi and started a church in his own home. All right? It was almost like a strawberry plant. I think it's a very effective way of church planting. From a position of strength, you send out a shoot and you get another plant here. It was a strawberry plant sort of church. Um, but he, he's writing to them to, to correct them and, and he says look I have the right to say this because of my sufferings now this is very interesting it doesn't mean that just because somebody suffered a lot uh, they necessarily have um, the right to, to speak they may have suffered for a stupid cause you know but on the other hand when it's a real believer who has got evangelical doctrine 
there is something very authoritative about somebody who suffers. When I was a um, late teens, there was a guy going around called Richard Birnbrand. I never actually saw him do this, but apparently very often on his um, uh, in the pulpit, to hundreds, he'd bare his chest and show the marks of the lashings he had that were still scarring his flesh. And, you know, we, 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 people were all horrified, etc. But he sort of said, look, I, I'm telling the truth about this. Um, but it's this verse, verse 24, I think is very key. And it's, it's a problem text, frankly. And I want us to try and look at it and see what it's saying to us today. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. I think if you were talking to somebody on the street and somebody said, oh, well, um, you know, there, there are things lacking in the afflictions of Christ, we might immediately rise up on our hands and say, hang on a minute, there's nothing lacking in what Jesus suffered. But here the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Well, the afflictions of Christ brought us reconciliation with God. They, they, they brought us redemption. Purchased by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They brought us justification. Certainly there's nothing deficient in the finished work of Christ. Now, the Roman Catholics would teach that, of course. You know, so they have to have a, a repetition of the quote-unquote sacrifice of the mass. So, what do they really say? Well, Christ died, yes, for sin. Great, but he needs to, as it were, be sacrificed afresh. So, when you take the, the bread and you drink of the wine, or the priest drinks of the wine, there's this transubstantiation, the, the, the bread turns into the body, the wine turns into the blood of Jesus, and he's sacrificing again, this continual sacrifice. And actually, that is, of course, I'm sure most of you know, the big issue of the Reformation. It was all to do with the Mass and the doctrine of transubstantiation. Did Jesus die once and for all for all sin, or is this to be a repeated sacrifice? And the Reformers used to talk about the blasphemy of the Mass, because they were really saying that Jesus' work wasn't sufficient for our sins today. And that is blasphemy. So, Paul isn't writing and saying there's something insufficient about the finished work of Jesus Christ that needs to be reenacted through the Mass or whatever else. He's not speaking, if I can put it more straightforwardly, Paul is not speaking about redemptive suffering. And, if I put it in the context I've just spoken, he's not talking about purgatory or the purchasing of indulgences. What is it, the moment there's something coined in the box, it's Something sold from it from Purgatory Springs. Do you remember that, that famous quote from Tetzel? Anyway, um, Paul's sufferings and his afflictions is the, the word he uses with sufferings are distinguished from and yet identifiable with Christ's sufferings. So Paul is saying, I'm suffering, I'm going through affliction and I'm filling up what he's lacking, but... He must be saying, and he's saying here earlier, that actually Jesus' works uh, are sufficient. For Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient for all sin. Paul's sufferings are exemplary. They are an example. And I want to argue that every believer's sufferings and every martyr's sufferings 
are exemplary, exemplary, but they supplement the sufferings of Jesus. And I want to try and explain how. The afflictions that we go through, the persecutions that we endure for the testimony of the gospel, are a sort of, trying to get the word right, they are a remnant and a continual display of the sufferings of Christ. They are not a reenactment of the sufferings of Christ, but they are a continual display. Jesus has died once and for all, for all sin. Christians have come to Christ and found everything we, we need and you know, we, we desire in Christ. But actually that doesn't free us from suffering at all. In fact, God takes our sufferings and he uses them as a sort of visual aid to portray the heart of the gospel, which is the suffering of Christ. Now it seems to me that we don't particularly say this in our evangelistic meetings. I don't know, sometimes I do. But um, it seems to me that Christians have suffered immensely more than non-Christians. Think, for example, let's go to John's um, uh, story the other day of the, the boxer, uh, sorry, of, of Hudson Taylor, and then we go to the Boxer Rebellion. Do you know how many CIM missionaries died in the Boxer Rebellion? It's 160 or so. 160. So, um, I read a book, and it's worth reading, entitled We Felt Like Grasshoppers. And it's the story of, um, of the Africa in the Mission. And a bit like Hudson Taylor attracting these young, brilliant people, you know, they're qualified as doctors and accountants and teachers, etc., men, women, couples. Um, just as they went with Hudson Taylor to China, they were also going to, um, to, to Africa. But to be frank, I don't, don't want to be horrible, but they were dying like flies. They were there three, four, five, six months mostly, and that was about it. And they died of malaria and. Um, uh, you know, they, they were giving themselves, they knew what they were giving themselves to, and very quickly they couldn't cope with the conditions, and they died. Now, there's a rich reward in, in Africa, and still a great openness to the gospel in many parts of Africa, but no doubt it was, it was partly due to the blood of the martyrs. They may not have been brutally murdered, <laughs> just a little mosquito uh, was enough to finish them off and they couldn't cope with it, etc. And in Northern Ireland, um, over the last 30 years, as we know, we've had the troubles of Northern Ireland, and um, oh, that's 40 years now, but for 30 years there were the troubles in Northern Ireland. And interestingly, um, a friend of mine who lived there throughout all the troubles, a university lecturer, he said, undoubtedly there have been more a high proportion of evangelical Christians who have been killed in the Troubles than there should have been proportionately, you understand what I'm saying, uh, by the percentage of how many evangelical Christians there are in Northern Ireland. More Christians were killed in the Troubles. And it does seem as though, time and again, Christians are going through it. I, when I pray for the persecuted church, I pray especially these days for Eritrea. And, and this horrible, horrible confinement of Christians into... Um, um, I've lost the word. What, what, what do you call them? The container boxes. Container, yeah, yeah, the container boxes. And, and dying there in the most horrendous conditions of heat and lack of water, um, food, etc. And basically because the, the president of Eritrea has just 
gone mad. He fought with Ethiopia. He lost, so he thought, right, let's take it out on somebody. And, and it, 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 it's terrible. And then Bezland Baptist Church. And uh, several of the children who were killed in that Bezland massacre in Russia a few years ago were from the Baptist Church, Christians. The pastor lost all his children. Wow, the suffering. And then... I've got to be very careful because there are some single girls here, and I don't mean this in any way, in a patronising way, but I think, from my understanding of the whole issue of singleness, etc., one of the most difficult things, I think, for the Christians in the West, in Britain, anyway, I'd say, is for Christian girls to remain single because there aren't enough Christian guys going round, for whatever reason, the guys that are single, I presume, yeah. with one or two exceptions. <laughs> but there aren't enough Christian guys to go round. And, um, um, and, um, and, and then the girl takes up her cross and says, right, I'm going to follow Jesus. I, if I went out into the world, there would be somebody, but I'm not going to go into the world. And to go back to an empty room year after year after year after year there's a Christian I've worked with many times in Christian ministry a great Christian girl and uh, she's about four or five years younger than me and I've just heard that she's starting living with a non-Christian boy and my heart just sank and I thought I cannot believe this except for the immense pressure of decades of longing for sympathy, etc. And then the number of Christians as well who are in unsatisfactory, unpleasant jobs. Day after day, week after week. Now, you'd have to go to some of the... I don't know that you get it quite as much in the south of England, or, but go to some of the northern churches, which are very working class, and talk to the ordinary people there. And they hate their work, but there's nothing else for them. And they're there week after week, earning virtually... Well, next to nothing, and yet they're there, yes, trying to live for Christ and speak for Christ and finding it very tough. And That's tough. Few people in the last century, I think, have understood the inevitability of suffering more than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We, now, we may not agree with him on everything, but that doesn't matter. He, he seems never to have wavered in his, in, his antagonism, his Christian antagonism, to the Nazi regime. And, of course, eventually it meant that he was going to be imprisoned, and then he was going to live under the threat of torture, and then danger to his own family, and finally he, 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 he was executed under the direct order of Henrik Himmler in April 1945 in the Flossenburg concentration camp. And it was only a few days before it was liberated. Now, listen to what he said. Suffering, then, is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master, Following Christ means suffering because we have to suffer. There was a bit of Latin there, but I missed that out. That is why Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church and one of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the sake of the gospel. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. So the afflictions of Christ are filled up by the reality of those who suffer and are taken up their cross. When, when we deny ourselves, when we go all out for the cause of Christ, we are, can I use this word, incarnating the sufferings of Christ to the watching world today. 
We are showing again that yes, we are a people under God who are not above the master, the Lord Jesus, but we are willing to suffer. John Calvin said, God does not call the people to triumph because he has exercised them, sorry, before he has exercised them in the warfare of suffering. Warren Wiersbe, who's writing that love very much, said, Calvary is God's great proof that suffering is in the will of God and it always leads to glory. Now, we don't necessarily think that, do we? You know, you go through a tough time and you start thinking, have I done something wrong? Is God punishing me? It's amazing how that seems a very natural reaction. So unbiblical, but a very natural reaction. Or has God withdrawn his immediate presence from me because I'm going through a terrible time? And we wonder why God isn't relieving us of this suffering, etc. But according to 1 Peter, rejoice, this is chapter 4, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And of course, Peter always marries together suffering and glory. They're, they're, they're not divorced. They, you know, what is the Christian life all about? Well, suffering, yeah, but glory. And uh, glory, but suffering. <laughs> they, they are there, they're both there. So, what, what can we learn from this? I can't believe I've only got seven minutes, uh, nine minutes left, perhaps, right. First, some lessons. One, we are to be strong in the Lord, but to remember the value of vulnerability. To be strong in the Lord, but to remember the value of vulnerability. I have, uh, well, I, I think I can tell you now because I'm not criticising it, but um, uh, I have a very good friend. We grew up together. He's now the direct, uh, Deputy Director of Public Prosecutions in Northern Ireland. And, uh, you know, we've been great pals for many, many years. And I always felt there was something lacking in Steve's life. It just, I don't know, it seemed too, everything was too easy, too smug, too formulaic really. And then his second son was born with real um, disability. Now actually, through surgery, they'd corrected it completely and you'd never know. But there was some real um, disability that was a great heartache for Steve and his wife Helen and all the rest. And I did feel it was at that time God put within the life of Steve maturity and a sense of vulnerability and realism. The Puritan John Collins said, the gospel gets really more advantage by the holy, humble sufferings of one saint simply for the, uh, simply for the word of righteousness than by the thousand arguments used against heretics and false worship. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the humble, humble sufferings of one saint Remember the words of um, Hugh Latimer to young uh, Ridley, and they're about to be martyred in Oxford. Uh, Play the man, Master Ridley. Today, by God's good <coughs> grace, we will light a flame in Britain which shall never be put out. Well, sadly, I think it has been put out. And uh, I used to say, sadly, I think it's flickering, but I think now it's we've just got the whisper of a bit of smoke left. But it's um, but nevertheless, through their immense sufferings. Martyred, burned to death, along with 250 odd others, uh, they lit a flame in Britain, which Britain enjoyed for what 350 years. And um, the lovely story, if you've never read it, you really should read Darling Diver Rose's book, Evidence Not Seen. It is totally unputdownable. 
but here she is and, uh, in a prisoner of war camp um, in the Dutch East Indies. And boy, is she suffering for the cause of Christ. And yet, right at the end, I mustn't spoil the book, she, I won't spoil it, but she meets again the commandant of the prisoner of war camp, and I'm not going to say any more now. But uh, suffering, and yet. And when I read that book, in, I read it, I know exactly when I read it, I read it, read it in December 31, 1999 into January 1st, 2000, because I couldn't get to sleep until I finished it. And uh, what a wonderful book. And I prayed that morning, Lord, would you give to me, because I don't think I've ever really suffered for your sake, would you give to me the privilege of suffering for the gospel's sake? And I don't know what it is, but there are loads of prayers of mine the Lord doesn't seem to hear, but he did hear that one. We gave the most terrible year, but anyway, there we are. Hmm. Um, <laughs> but you get the idea. So we're to be strong in the Lord. There is a confidence. We, you know, we have a message. We have the Lord. We, we have strength. But let's remember we are vulnerable as well. Secondly, we are to rejoice in the Lord. But remember sensitivity to suffering. There's nothing worse if you've got... Um, um, uh, you're going through a real bad time and somebody comes up to you, you know... Hey, old fellow, old man, haven't we got so much to rejoice? Oh, okay, I'm sure we have <laughs> God withholds nothing from those who walk uprightly, according to the Bible. Uh, 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 and yet, to quote Bonhoeffer again, a Christian is someone who shares the sufferings of God in the world. And those who always sort of talk of victory and triumph and beam and all, you know, etc., etc., I don't know, it just seems as though. Well, I don't know, perhaps they can rejoice more than I can rejoice, but it just seems that there's something not quite real in, in there. The Lord, after all, is described as um, uh, a man of sorrows, isn't he? He knew what it was to weep, not only at Lazarus' grave, but over the city of Jerusalem, because of the lostness of the lost. And I never quite understand the sort of cartwheeling round the streets mentality that doesn't have a concern, a burden for the lost as well. It just, there is, there's a paradoxical balance within our emotions of, of great rejoicing but also um, knowing that people are very much going through it how much we know of the sufferings of our fellow human beings is a measure of how much we love them and uh, it's been great to have had Vinnie here but he's really suffering over the, the fact that his brother Lawrence has got cancer of the esophagus and he's an unsaved brother. Um, now, Lawrence isn't a Christian, but he just wants him to be saved. There's also, we learn to suffer on behalf of the whole body of Christ. Remembering the persecuted believers. Remember the starving believers. Remembering the believers whose husbands have been martyred in, in troubles and difficulties, etc. Yes, we rejoice, but there is a sensitivity to the emotions of others. Thirdly, we worship the Lord, but we remember as well our witness to the world. We, we acknowledge the greatness of God, and yet there is to be that attitude within us that says, Lord, whatever, as long as it's useful in your service, as long as it can be used to reach out to others. And uh, remember, it's actually through much suffering that we enter the kingdom of God, Satanoah. 
difficult text, but we'll leave that for the moment. But Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul was in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, quote, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2 to 4, Paul had said, Timothy to Thessalonians, quote, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it had come to pass, and just as you know. And then in Acts chapter 9, uh, the Lord speaking about the Apostle Paul, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's incredible, isn't it? So, suffering is in the purpose of God in Christian service. I wonder whether... Christian service includes a friend of mine, Lynn. Again, we, we knew each other very well. I remember I was there when she was converted, age 17. and She was a bright sort of uh, girl. She married a um, chap who was supposed to be converted through me, but he clearly was one of my converts. He became an elder of the church. But then Lynn got MS. And he thought, well, I'm not going to stay around with a woman with MS. So he went off after somebody else left Lynn with two children and became really uncontrollable because she couldn't control them. She couldn't move, she had to be helped in everything to, to get up, to wash, to toilet, to dress. To uh, And for the last, I don't know, maybe three, four years, she's been in a um, Leonard Cheshire home and she just lies there. Yet she loves the Lord. So is the acceptance of that suffering, I, I have to believe this, and the acceptance of whatever pain she's going through, is that for her service for Christ? And, and it has to be, it has to be, um, she's filling up in her flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. The fact that she's there without grumbling, and, and I have to believe, as Amy Carmichael put it, and I've quoted many times, that God never wastes any suffering, God never wastes any pain, God, God never wastes any time. And um, I don't understand all the workings of God by any means, but I do know by faith that when he takes us through periods of suffering, um, he uses it. Let me end uh, by quoting something. I haven't put the source of this, but it is a quotation. So, we cannot create the vital seed, but we can plant it and tend it and water it, and we can labour for an abundant harvest. And thus it is that our filling up of the sufferings of Christ is not done on the hill called Calvary. It is done on the long road which begins at the empty tomb and which stretches through Jerusalem and Samaria and reaches the uttermost parts of the earth. In the Christian redemption, our sufferings are not fundamental. They are supplemental. Sacrificial disciples are needed to proclaim the sacrificial work of our Lord. Only in this way can we fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. We must not be daunted, therefore, if called upon to suffer, for thereby we shall be permitted to set forward the progress of the Church and the accomplishment of God's purpose. So if God is calling us to evangelistic work, to getting out the, the gospel to unconverted people, part of that call 
has to include suffering. And that is very hard to take on board. So Hudson Taylor, no blessing, he suffered emotionally when his fellow missionaries were killed in the Boxer Rebellion, but that great quote you had, I cannot pray, I cannot, I forgot what else, but I can trust. I cannot read, I cannot, um, I cannot read, I cannot think, I cannot pray, mm-hmm. I trust. but I can trust. And um, God takes us sometimes down very lonely paths, and in those moments we need to learn to trust God in the darkness and say, Lord, this is very tough. But I just pray that it will be used to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Mm. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we can never suffer as the Lord Jesus suffered because he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We will never need to cry that because you're with us through everything. Mm. But if there are ever times when we feel as though we've been forsaken, forgive us and help us in those times to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me just finish, sorry, as I was praying, I was thinking of Helen Rosevear's words. Um, If you've read her book Digging Ditches, which is the latest volume in her autobiography, um, basically it's it's on this theme. You remember she was she was uh, beaten, she was kicked, she was raped, she was abused, she was thrown in prison. She was eventually taken up and lined in front of a firing squad in what was then called the Belgian Congo. She was back in prison. Uh, it was absolutely horrendous. And in prison, she came to this question, and, and it's worth, just worth concentrating to get this question. It wasn't, do I trust God to allow me to suffer, even if he never tells me why? I think that's a great question. But it wasn't that. This was the question. Can I thank God that he trusts me with suffering even if he never tells me why? Can I thank God that he trusts me with suffering even if he never tells me why?